Good morning. I said this first hour, do you guys think Mary and Joseph had to deal with the wind on the way to Bethlehem? I mean, can you imagine Joseph like, come on, you know, you old mule, and just, it would have been, uh, maybe they did, maybe it was sort of like Wyoming. Thank you for being here this morning. If you're online, uh, we welcome you, and we're excited that you're joining us, and Merry Christmas. Um, I'm thankful and excited to be able to preach the Word of God this morning, especially during Christmas this season. I must confess, and I'm sure my family could attest to this, I am what you would call an old-school Christmas traditionalist. And if you don't know what that is, just look at Charles. I told him this morning, those are some nice pants. I'm jealous of that jacket because Charles's jacket pretty much embodies what I think of Christmas every year. You know, growing up, my family loved Christmas. They loved Jesus. They made Jesus a very important part of Christmas, but we also enjoyed the season. And uh, we put up a tree and we decorated the house with lights. Matter of fact, my grandfather built a star uh, in the 1950s that is on our house right now, which is really cool. So we really, we really try to do it right at Christmas time. You know, growing up, like I said, I mean, we had big family get-togethers. I'm sure you guys do. You know, back before only 12 people could meet in a room. And, and uh, we had lots of southern food because you do know that after Mary gave birth, Joseph brought chicken fried steak and fried chicken because that is what you should be eating. But anyway, we, you know, we sang all the traditional songs, we watched all the movies, it was an enjoyable time growing up, and to be honest, as a kid, I was convinced that Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and Nat King Cole were the three wise men. I really believe that, just kidding, not that, not that slow, but, and some of you probably don't even know who Bing Crosby is, first hour they did, second hour, I don't know, Google it, so... To say the least, I was happy when Charles uh, offered me this opportunity to preach just a few days before Christmas. And, uh, you know, four weeks ago, Charles started a great sermon series that has taken us on a spiritual journey to the Christmas season. And through this journey, Charles talked about three critical vital signs, I guess is what I call them, of a healthy relationship with Jesus And those three things that he talked about over the past few weeks was hope, love, and joy. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to those sermons, I urge you to do that. Just go online to pvcc.info and and get caught up because they're great sermons and they're so applicable to this time of year. As I listened to these sermons, I had two big takeaways, and I hope you had the same takeaways as well as you listen to them. First is that hope, love, and joy that Jesus offers is authentic and life-altering. It's the real deal. And second, what I took away was I recognize that Jesus is the only source to that true hope, to that true love, and to that true joy. Without Jesus, it's impossible to understand or grasp what they mean. This morning, we're going to wrap up that series by talking about the fourth gift that Jesus offers freely, and that is the gift of peace. 
You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was about to be born. And it was no ordinary birth, no ordinary historical event. There was nothing normal about this occasion. It was truly unique. I want you to think about this. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, is going to step out of heaven into our sinful and broken world. He's coming to earth. Emmanuel, God is with us. And while all other kings and rulers at that time were living in palaces, surrounded by gold and armies and servants and slaves, living in luxury, Jesus is going to be born in a lowly set of circumstances to a young girl probably 15 or 16 years of age in a place suited only for animals. And so maybe this morning you're asking why. Why did God come to earth? Why did he send us his only son that he loved? Maybe you're struggling to wrap your mind around that fact that God's going to come to earth, he's going to become a man, he's going to live some 30 years, and then he's going to die on a Roman cross. If you're struggling with that this morning, let me help you understand the why. This is what the Bible says, the why behind why God came. First of all, he loves you. That's, that's really it. He loves you. He wants you to have eternal life. He wants you to have hope. He wants you to know what real love means. He wants you to have joy. And he wants you to have peace. You know, his birth was predicted 400 years earlier in the book of Isaiah. If you look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, I know you guys have heard this verse quite often around this time of year. For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah makes it very clear that this Jesus is not only the Messiah, he's not only this wonderful counselor, but he is mighty God. He is the eternal father, and he is also the prince of peace. And so when that day finally came a couple of thousand years ago and Mary had given birth, these angels announced it and praised God in mighty ways, probably better than Bing Crosby could have done it. In Luke 2, 13 through 14, it says, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. And there we see that word again, peace. We see it in Isaiah. We see it in Luke. Literally, Luke is telling us peace has come to earth. It has come to us. The word that Luke uses to describe peace is a Greek word, and I'm going to try and pronounce it the best I can, erene, erene, which means tranquility, calmness, and a quiet soul. I pray that you experience that in your life with your walk with Christ. Because not only did Jesus bring us the opportunity for peace, but he is, by definition, 
peace for mankind. Jesus is the author of peace. He defines peace. He embodies peace. His peace is beyond what this world can comprehend or even grasp. It surpasses all understanding. And without him, I'm going to tell you a hard truth. We have no hope for peace. No hope for peace in your life if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. In Ephesians 2.14, the Apostle Paul gets it perfectly. He says, he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Jesus is the giver of peace. He desires for you to have peace in your life. He desires for you to have tranquility and calmness in that solitude. He desires for you to have a defense mechanism in times of trouble and difficulties. Because we will face them, correct? To the contrary, Satan desires you to lack peace. Would you agree? He wants you to have inner conflict. Satan wants you to suffer. Satan wants you to have fear. Satan wants you to have worry and doubt and insecurity. He wants you to spend the rest of your days in search of peace, only never to find it. That's what Satan wants for your life. Satan is fully aware of who the source of peace is. He knows all about Jesus. And he is here, especially during Christmas, to distract us, to tell us lies, to give us false hope, to give us false securities, and what I would call to give us a fake peace. I'm sure you guys have heard fake news. Well, Satan is in the fake peace business, and I probably the fake news business too, but he's also really in the fake peace business. I'm sure you've heard people say things like, you know what, I'm going to the mountains this weekend, I'm going to have some peace. Or you know what, I'm going to be on the lake, I'm going to finally have some peace. Or you know, once I have enough money, I'm going to finally have that inner peace. Or you know, if the doctor would have just given me good news, I would have had peace. As you can see, the peace that the devil offers is secular, it's worldly, and it depends on favorable circumstances. If you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to say that again. I, I urge you to write that down in your Bible. Secular or worldly peace depends on favorable circumstances. That's the peace that Satan offers. That's all he can offer. If I have money, I have peace. If I'm with the right person, I have peace. If this guy is president, I will finally have peace. When I was preparing this sermon, I googled the word peace and how to attain peace. And what I found was very interesting. Did you know that each year, literally thousands of books are written in America on how to attain peace? And many of them make the New York Times bestsellers list. Why do you think all these books find their way as the best-selling books? It's because people want peace in their life. I, I read online that 44% of Americans are seeking some kind of treatment for inner conflict. Some kind of help. They're starving for peace. 
They're turning to everything but Jesus. There's books on yoga, New Age spiritualism, books about being in control of your life. If I'm in control, there will be peace. Oprah Winfrey touts the book The Secret. I'm sure you've heard about it. I have never read it, but if I ever need a good doorstop, I will be sure to buy it. She says it's the single best way to achieve peace in your life. But as I searched on Google, the one thing that I found, all of these books have one thing in common. You know what it is? How to achieve favorable circumstances. How to make life favorable. To block out all the bad things. Right? That's not how it works. When I read scripture, I see something totally opposite. I actually see God's people constantly in unfavorable circumstances. You think Paul, when he was shipwrecked, thought, this is favorable? What about when the snake got him? Oh, this is great. But he had peace. What about Stephen, when he's about to be stoned to death? What is he thinking about? Forgiveness for the people who are about to kill him. He's not thinking revenge. He's got peace. And God protected him during that death, that physical death. The Bible is full of people doing his will during unfavorable circumstances. In this season, Mary and Joseph. You think Mary found these situations favorable? You think this is what she dreamed of growing up as a kid? Well, later she obviously did, but... Not the way it was explained to her. They had peace. As a matter of fact, Mary tells God in a prayer that I will be your bond servant. That's how much peace that Mary had. And I believe Joseph had that peace as well. Because they knew Jesus, they knew God, and they obeyed him. When we compare the two, secular peace versus biblical peace, we see quite the contrast I'd like to look at two verses of scripture in the book of John this morning where Jesus himself talks about peace. And the first one is John chapter 14, verse 27. It's a very popular verse in scripture. And he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled nor fearful. John 16, Jesus also says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. I like how Jesus points that out. You are going to have conflict and animosity and hard times but be cheerful. Be cheerful. That's tough. And apart from Jesus, it's impossible. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, you will have peace when the circumstances are favorable. He does not say that. Matter of fact, I believe when you follow Jesus, he's probably going to push you into unfavorable, uncomfortable difficult circumstances. In these two verses, we discover some really important truths about receiving this peace that Jesus talks about. First and foremost, 
in order to have this peace, this holy peace, it starts with knowing Jesus as your Savior. He says, this peace, this peace you find in me. We must be reconciled back to God. That relationship is broken. There is no peace. It's incapable of peace in a severed relationship. We must be brought back in. We must be reconciled and fully restored. And the only way to do that is through Jesus. Apart from him, it is impossible to have peace in your life. This is the most important ingredient. If you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've not entered that watery grave and you've died to your old self, you're going to constantly be in search of a peace that will never fill you up. It will always be temporary or a distant wish. We also learn that this peace is given freely and it's readily available I'm sure you've heard people, I mentioned it earlier, they say, you know, I'm going to be in the mountains this week, I'm going to have peace. And you know what I always think of? I was like, man, I'm glad I serve a God that only lives in the mountains. Or doesn't only live in the mountains. I said that wrong. I, you know, I might find myself in a desert. You know, I always think of three amigos, Larry. You know, and not have water in a desert on a lame horse. You know, I might find out I have cancer one day. You know, I might lose another loved one. Are you going to have peace in those moments? Because those are not favorable circumstances. And Jesus is saying, be cheerful. The world can't comprehend that. Finally, Jesus' desire for your life is that you have inner peace through both good and bad times. There's a guy that uh, many of you have heard of, maybe watched in a movie. His name's Louis Zamperini, and that's him. Anybody ever heard of this guy? A lot of people. If you went to First Hour, you've heard about him. Many of you probably do know about him and don't know it. If you saw the movie Unbroken, or if you read the book, if you're like me, I skip the book, go straight to the movie. Louis was an Olympic runner in the 30s, and he set many records. And matter of fact, in the 38 Olympics, he actually ran in front of Adolf Hitler in Berlin. And he set a new lap record. He was a gifted athlete. But then World War II happened. And guess what Louis did along with just about every other 18-year-old man at that time? He enlisted to fight and later, you'll know, if you've read the book and seen the movie, his plane is shot down. He, is, he and his friends and his uh, fellow soldiers are stranded at sea for weeks on end, starving, thirsty, and literally dying until the Japanese capture them. And then it gets worse. He is put in a concentration camp for many, many months. There he would be beaten. He would watch his friends murdered. He would be tormented and his mind would be injured. But when he was finally free, he returned home. And that's when he realized how difficult things were going to get. He started to abuse his wife. 
He turned to alcohol, and things spiraled out of control. But a friend who loved Jesus invited him to this big tent revival. Very popular back in that day, especially in the South. And he went to this, and there was this guy preaching there. Maybe you've heard of him, Billy Graham. And Billy Graham led Louis Zamperini to Jesus. And he and Billy developed a long friendship. And Louis's wife accepted Jesus. The whole, it was just a wonderful thing. And as Louis, his faith deepened, he became an evangelist. He wrote books. And then later he does what the world tells you to never do. Forgive your enemies. He goes to Japan and meets the men who ran the concentration camp. And he loves on them and he forgives them and he tells them about Jesus. I would say this man had great peace and contentment in his life no matter what is thrown at him. If we look at Philippians chapter 4, 6 through 9, I believe that this verse, these verses that Paul writes here are excellent in helping you understand how to handle a peaceful life. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice Paul doesn't say you'll never have conflict, you'll never have struggles, you'll never have difficulties. No, what he says is this peace is going to protect you. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. So if you want to know how to have this peace that Paul is talking about, read those verses after you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. Now I would like to talk about six things here briefly that I believe a person who loves Jesus is applying to their life each day. These are six, six things that will guard your heart. Number one, you should be pursuing God's purpose for your life. That's why you're here. That's why you were born. That's why you were created. If you are not focused in on his will for your life, and you're not diligently seeking his purpose, Satan will rob you of your peace. He will take it from you. Many people are in constant pursuit of happiness, which is, in my opinion, very dangerous. We sometimes put our hope in worldly purposes and meaning. We get entrenched in popularity or worldly gain or, you know, maybe being successful or whatever. But the Bible is clear. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is our purpose. Not only do you have great purpose, but you also have a spiritual gift or other many spiritual gifts that you should be using 
to further the kingdom of God and to fulfill the Great Commission. That is your purpose. I've heard it said, whatever it is that you do, glorify God in it and lead others to Christ. Use it as a vessel. Number two, you know that God is in control. Romans 8.28 is one of my favorite verses. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There will be conflict. There will be struggles. There might even be a virus. I don't know, has there been a virus recently? There will be challenges and tribulations. But know this, God is in control. He loves you. He knows what's best for you. But if we lose sight of this, Satan will use it to rob you of your peace. Number three, you should trust God to meet your needs. Not your wants. I've got lots of wants, but God knows my needs. Do you believe this morning that God is looking out for you? Do you believe that when Jesus was on the cross and the pain and the suffering and the separation, do you know that he was thinking about your needs? Not his needs, your needs. And I'm not talking about in general. I'm talking you. Your name. He saw you. That's what was on his mind on the cross. In Matthew 6, Jesus reminds us not to worry about what we will have to eat or drink or what even clothes we're going to wear. He says, trust God and seek his kingdom. When we fail to do this, when we become distracted, Satan will rob you of your peace. Number four, repent of any sin, or all sin, that clogs your conscience. We know that Satan uses sin to clog our conscience and rob us of our peace. When confronting with temptation, when you're tempted, you have two options. You will either turn to that sin and succumb to it, or you will say no and return to God and follow Him in that moment. The Bible tells us that confession is good for the soul, and I believe that. It removes guilt and shame, and it sets you free, and it gives you peace. Number five, stop filling emptiness with worldly and secular things. It will never work. It will be temporal. You'll feel good in the moment, but eventually it runs out. Satan loves giving us options when you feel empty, doesn't he? Oh, he's got all kinds of options for you. Look behind curtain number one. Here we go. And he has all kinds of options. And he will use his options to rob you of your peace. Instead, know this, that Jesus is the only one who can fill that void in your life. And not only is he the only one who can do that, but he wants to. He wants to. He wants to fill that void in your life. He desires that relationship. 
And finally, accept who God made you to be. Many people in this world struggle with peace because they think they're inadequate. They think they're not good enough. They don't live up. I don't look a certain way. I can't run as fast as that guy. Whatever it is. I'm sure the last time you were checking out the grocery store or Walmart, and there's always a magazine rack about eye level for little kids to see. Do you ever notice that? And on this magazine rack are many beautiful people, at least on the outside. The so-called group of people who have it all figured out. They have the money, the athleticism, the beauty, the intelligence. And we're led to believe that they have it all figured out. But I'm here to tell you that it is a lie. God loves you right now for who you are. And if you do not understand that, Satan is robbing you of your peace. In reality, most, if not all of those people are probably struggling with peace. They're working on their fifth marriage. They're probably in debt up to their eyeballs. And like I said in first hour, have you ever heard of airbrushing? All their flaws have been airbrushed out to fool you. I'm not saying you shouldn't maybe try to lose weight or eat right. I'm not saying I'm, God wants you to take care of yourself, but God loves you for who you are. And sometimes you may think you're inadequate or you don't live up to something, and it's just a total lie. It's a sham. Don't allow Satan or this world to make you doubt that you were not created in the image of God. You were created in the image of God. You have beauty and value. Jeremiah 1.5 reminds us that before we were even formed in our mother's womb, he set us apart. He loved us. I'd like to close with this, and I know many of you have heard this story countless times in the book of John, but this morning when I tell you this story, I want you to think about it a little differently. I want you to look at it through the perspective of peace. And there was this woman who lived in Samaria. And she was going to get water out of a well. And she was going at noon, which tells you a lot. That tells you that she wanted to avoid other women. Because she had guilt and shame for the sin in her life. And now this woman, based on John's writing, obviously had made a lot of poor choices in her life. As a matter of fact, she got in the habit of avoiding people. We find out later that she had been married five times. And not only that, but the, the man that she was living with that day was not even her husband. She was already on to marriage number six. As you can tell, she struggled. And I know that she knew that she was conflicted. And I know that she knew that she had pain and shame and guilt. And to top it all off, she was a Samaritan. First hour, I said, that's like being from Tennessee in Kentucky. That's a Kentucky joke. Or be like from Colorado, I guess. Oh, hope I don't offend anybody. <laughs> Sorry, Larry. <laughs> the Jews viewed the Samaritans as unclean pagans, not worthy. There was nothing good in this woman's life. Who knows her background? Was she abused? Was she an orphan? We don't know. Hopefully we get to find that out in heaven. 
But whatever the case, whatever it was in her life that took her down this path of hopelessness and poor choices, it was all about to change. Because peace came to earth. And peace literally came to that well and was waiting for her. Peace. A conversation ensues. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never go thirsty. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What Jesus was saying, if you drink from my cup, you will live forever. You will have hope. You will have joy. You will have peace. You will have love. Jesus sought her out. And he's seeking us out. He's seeking you out. Maybe you, hopefully you've already accepted Jesus. Maybe he waited on you and you said, here I am, Lord. I'm ready. Maybe you haven't. Maybe Jesus is still waiting on you. That's what makes Jesus totally unique. There's no work involved. You don't have to do all this stuff and jump through hoops. He is waiting for you at the whale. He is offering peace during this Christmas season. So if you have a decision to make this morning, I pray that you would do it now and don't wait. Wouldn't it be awesome for you to tell your friends that I was baptized in the dreaded year of 2020 during Christmas? Let's pray. Dear Holy Father God, we thank you so much for Christmas. We thank you for Jesus being born and dying on that cross 30 years later. But conquering death to give us hope. I thank you for this church body and I just pray for peace for everyone here and peace in this country, peace in this world. But I pray most of all, Lord, that we would turn to you. And in Jesus' name we pray.